Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar, coming to you from my office at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy, which is uh, a reluctant sponsor of this Onco Oncology Pharmacy podcast. Uh, today, a lot to talk about. Uh, it's the 1st of October, and October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month here in the States, so I was hoping to to do a breast cancer focused podcast and uh, hopefully we'll be able to do one this month. But uh, in the last month, there's been a lot that's happened. We had two new drugs approved, a whole bunch of immunotherapy updates. We had a Nobel Prize awarded for the uh, the development of immunotherapy uh, and a couple uh, you know updates to a myeloma drug. Uh, and then also a, an important paper for another myeloma drug. So a lot to talk about, let's get right into it. September 27th, last week, uh, dacomitinib, uh, and EGFR TKI was approved in the for the first line treatment of um, metastatic non-small cell lung cancer that is EGFR mutation positive, either an exon 19 deletion or exon 21 rearrangement. It is, as I said, an EGFR uh, epidermal growth factor um, receptor, tyrosine kinase receptor, also inhibits HER2, so it's considered a pan EGFR family inhibitor. Um, so mechanistically, as far as other TKIs, it's probably most similar uh, to a fatinib. Um, interestingly, a fatinib does have a warning in the package insert about uh, a decrease in left ventricular ejection fraction happening in about 2.2% of patients on a fatinib uh, that was not seen with dacomitinib. There's no mention of it in the PI, even though they did look for it uh, in the study. Uh, since this is a bit of a me too drug, we have several uh, EGFRT guys, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on dacomitinib, uh, and you'll see why when we get to the study design uh, on uh, the pivotal trial here. Uh, the dose is 45 milligrams PO daily with or without regard to food. So without regard to food. You can take it with or without food. Uh, it comes in 15, 30, and 45 milligram dosage form. Uh, and it was approved based on a progression-free survival benefit. There was no overall survival um, analysis. Uh, it was a fairly robust PFS benefit, so 14.7 months was the median progression-free survival with dacomitinib compared to 9.2 months with gefitinib. And this is based on the Archer 1050-1050 study. And if you are um, you know, a, a frequent reader of lung cancer studies, you would probably guess that the comparison, because the comparator group is gefitinib, that this was largely a study in an Asian population. That is indeed true. Uh, I think 70 to 75% of patients in this study were Asian. And a little bit of a backstory, taking a detour to a different um, disease within the lung cancer realm. Small cell lung cancer, uh, you know, the standard treatment for the limited stage small cell lung cancer here in the States is cisplatin etoposide plus radiation. Uh, there was an Asian study, I think primarily a Japanese study, uh, that looked at cis etoposide compared to cis irantecan, and they found that cisplatin irantecan had an overall survival benefit compared to cisplatin etoposide in, uh, and again, I think it was a Jap mostly a Japanese patient population. Uh, the study was repeated in the U.S., um, and there was no difference. So why would irinotecan be better in an Asian population than a Caucasian population? And it probably has to do with polymorphisms, especially in glutathione uh, conjugation pathways, uh, which, um, based on some, uh, some quick research that I did, I saw glutathione conjugation um, uh, um, and glucuronidation, sorry, glucuronidation, um, polymorphisms in like 60% of, of patients with Chinese uh, ancestry and Korean ancestry. So perhaps something going on there. 
uh, why Adrenatecan maybe was better in the Asian population. That's just kind of a story to put this in perspective um, because um, uh, dacomitinib is metabolized primarily by CYP2D6 as well as glutathione conjugation, and there are polymorphisms uh, likely that might contribute to some differences. Bottom line, what I'm getting at here is the results of this study of dacomitinib that warranted FDA approval in the United States was based on a heavily Asian population and therefore may not be generalizable to a, the larger um, um, American population outside of those of Asian ancestry. Uh, however, we'll go with what we have. Uh, by the way, this study, Archer 1050, was published in Lancet Oncology almost exactly a year ago, September 25th, 2017. Um, there was more diarrhea with dacomitinib, 87% versus 56% with gefitinib. There was more rash, 69% versus 47%, and that was a grade 3 or 4 rash in 23% of patients, so pretty serious rash with dacomitinib. Also, much more paronchia. So paronchia are like fingernail or toenail abnormalities, infection, cracking, and that happened in 64% with dacomitinib, mostly grade one and two, versus 21% with gefitinib. Um, so dacomitinib was more toxic for these things with the exception of increases in liver function tests, or as I call them, liver damage tests. Uh, so 35, 40% with dacomitinib compared to 57, 63% with gefitinib. Uh, Similar to erlotinib, although not like a fatinib, dacomitinib's absorption is dependent on an acidic pH, and PPIs do decrease the absorption by 39%, so less of an interaction maybe um, with a PPI compared to erlotinib. A local antacid, so like malox, did not affect absorption, uh, and H2 receptor antagonists like famotidine were not studied, so we don't know. But if you were taking famotidine every day, it'd probably be closer to the effects of a PPI and should be avoided. Um, so besides being a 2D6 substrate, and um, it actually is not prone to interactions with 3 or 4 or 2D6 inhibitors, but dacomitinib by itself is a potent 2D6 inhibitor. It increases the area under the curve of the typical 2D6 probe substrate, dextromethorphan. It increases the AUC by 9.6 fold. Uh, so that Robitussin DM, the dextromethorphan, if you took that, a dose of that, um, while on dacomitinib would be like taking, you know, 10 times that, uh, which seems like it would be a pretty big interaction, is a little bit downplayed in the PI. Of note, other common 2D6 substrates include carvedilol, metoprolol, fluoxetine, peroxetine, and a host of others, really. Um, I mentioned that the most of these patients were Asian, and how that may affect generalizability to uh, a Caucasian population. I'll also point out that in the suburb analysis, the benefit of dacomitinib was limited to the Asian population. It wasn't seen in the non-Asian population. Again, maybe that's um, an, an artifact of most of the study being an Asian population, but when you see the Kaplan-Meier curves in the supplementary appendix, it's not in the main article, uh, it's a pretty sizable difference in how the Kaplan-Meier curves separate in the Asian population compared to the non-Asian population. So, um, you know, my take-home point for dacomitinib is if you're treating Asians in your clinic, uh, then this makes a great option. Uh, for non-Asians, uh, I think we would need more data to see how this really stacks up to the drugs we currently use oftentimes in the States, which would be erlotinib, afitinib, and ocimertinib. And again, this is most similar to afatinib rather than erlotinib. Uh, I do want to give the authors of this study uh, a shout-out for the reporting of, uh, of side effects. I have not seen this uh, a figure presented in this way. Um, 
and, and I'll, I'll have to tweet this out for those of you who have access to Lancet Oncology, um, but essentially there, it's a bar graph uh, of decomitinib next to gefitinib for you know the common side effects or worries you would think about. So they include things like cough, dyspnea, pain in chest, pain in the arm or shoulder, pain in other parts, fatigue. These are things that affect lung cancer patients, as well as diarrhea and a sore mouth, which is a drug-related thing. And if those symptoms get better, the bar graphs go down. And the more they go down, uh, the, the more the average uh, change occurred. So what we see here is that there's quite a bit more diarrhea that, uh, and it increases with dacomitinib uh, compared to gefitinib as well as sore mouth. Um, but that cough gets better with all of them. Uh, pain in chest was anyone that's significantly different. And it, this is part of recording uh, quality of life and that there was no net change in, um, in quality of life for uh, dacomitinib. So dacomitinib did not improve quality of life, whereas patients taking gefitinib actually had a deterioration in quality of life. Um, and that was, that's always useful to point out uh, in studies. So, so kudos to the authors for including that, uh, that figure. Okay, moving on, September 28th uh, of last, well, of this year, but of last month. Semipiplimab. Um, let me say that again. Semiplimab. 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 Dash RWLC. Uh, which is a PD-1 monoclonal antibody. was approved for metastatic or locally advanced squamous cell, uh, or cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, or, or um, a, a type of non-melanoma skin cancer, the squamous type. Uh, the approval was based off of overall response rate and the durable uh, nature of those responses. Uh, the overall response rate was 47%, and um, uh, the majority of those were lasting six months or more, I believe. Um, the toxicity profile was similar to all the other PD-1 monoclonal antibodies. Uh, so that's really all I'm going to say about that, given uh, you know, how rare metastatic or locally advanced uh, squamous cell carcinoma of the skin is. Uh, but while we're on the subject of immunotherapy, uh, the Nobel Prize was awarded to two researchers, shared this, one in Texas and one uh, in Japan, I believe, for their work in um, unraveling and discovering the role the immune system played and how to use the immune system and harness it and cutting the brakes with regards to checkpoint inhibitors to treat cancer. Uh, and I heard one of the uh, the guy from Texas, I think his name is Dr. Austin, but no, that's that's the capital of Texas. I don't know if that's the guy's name. I shouldn't say that. Um, I heard him talking on NPR, and he said that the Nobel Committee told him this was the first uh, Nobel Prize awarded for the treatment of cancer, which which I found kind of astounding considering how many patients are alive from testicular cancer uh, because they got cisplatin and how many people are alive from Hodgkin's lymphoma or testicular cancer because of, of bleomycin and all these drugs we've used and not to mention the cures we've achieved in uh, acute leukemias and non-Hodgkin's lymphomas and none of, none of those uh, chemotherapy advances warranted a Nobel Prize but immunotherapy did which I think speaks um, you know, to how exciting we are in this era of immunotherapy uh, in treating cancer patients. And in that vein, I'm going to talk about several studies published in the last month about immunotherapy. So uh, in the last uh, week's edition of the New England Journal of Medicine, so this was September 25th, we had the updated survival analysis of the Pacific study. So Pacific randomized patients with stage 3 lung cancer who were not cancer for definitive uh, chemoradiation. So chemoradiation would cure them. Um, Sorry, those, those 3A patients who got definitive chemoradiation 
and then we're randomized either to Dervalumab, PD-1 monoclonal antibody, or surveillance, uh, and it showed a big, huge PFS benefit. Uh, and this is looking at the mature overall survival data. And you know, the take-home point is that the progression-free survival gap actually gets wider with longer follow-up. Uh, I think the median PFS in the original study was some, something in the nature of 15 or 16 months. Uh, it's now 17.2 months. So uh, it's it, whereas before the PFS you know was three times as much. Now it's a little bit more than three times as much. Um, so certainly this uh, the longer that they have followed patients, the more benefit Dervalumab seems to have. That's kind of the take-home point. Um, we also have now with more mature overall survival analysis, are able to see the subgroup analysis, and there are two subsets of patients who really benefited. Uh, and these were all patients. This was irrespective of PD-1 status. But those who had m greater than or equal to 25% PD-L1 status uh, derived the most benefit. Their hazard ratio for death was 0.46, so it was a 54% improvement in the risk of death compared to those who had less than 25% expression of PD-L1. And then uh, I believe they had 42 days, um, maybe 35 days, in the original study from the end of radiation to starting treatment. Those who started Dervalumab within 14 days had a hazard ratio for death of 0.42, which was statistically significant. Um, so there was more benefit to starting Dervalumab earlier rather than later, which may be a, of an issue in some areas depending on how well the radiation oncologist and medical oncologist work together. Uh, also, uh, in the last month, October 1st, uh, the Journal of Clinical Oncology published um, the full results of something that was presented at ASCO. And this was a joint evaluation by Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and the Gustave Roussy Cancer Center. I, I guess that's how you say it. It's in France. That's why I tried to France it up in the pronunciation. Uh, looking at the use of PD-1, PD-L1 drugs in patients who are on baseline corticosteroids. And this was presented at ASCO and talked about it in my ASCO wrap-up. And basically, uh, in a, in they're looking at this as a retrospective cohort analysis, and they're finding that patients on more than 10 milligrams or equivalent of prednisone have you know, poor results in terms of survival if they're on steroids when they start a PD-1 or PD-L1 monoclonal antibody. One thing that I will point out, though, and that, that they do mention, uh, and this is before I get into that, this is important to look at this because being on more than 10 milligrams of prednisone equivalent is often going to exclude you from clinical trials. So we really don't know what happens to patients on baseline corticosteroids when they come into this, um, for for whatever reason it may be. Okay, I will point out that when you look at the baseline demographics. The patients, uh, so there are about 600 patients in this study, and the majority of them are on the, the low or no prednisone arm. Uh, and then you've only got, you've got less than 100 who are on more than 10 milligrams of prednisone a day. Uh, that group was on, uh, you know, more than a physiologic dose of prednisone. Uh, they were more likely to be an ECOG status of two or greater. So Eastern Cooperative, Pro uh, Eastern uh, cooperative oncology group uh, performance status. So they had a poor performance status, so therefore probably were set up to have a poor survival. And they also had a higher uh, likelihood of having a history of brain cancer. So we're talking 42% in the in the Sloan Kettering group compared to 23%. Uh, so almost twice as many patients in the high steroid group had a history of brain meds. It may have been the reason that they were on steroids. Um, so the patients on the steroid group were more likely to have a bad performance status, more likely to die sooner, and more likely to have brain meds, also more likely to die sooner. 
So whether or not we're seeing you know, a prognostic or predictive effect of baseline steroid uses is, is unknown. I tend to think that these are sicker patients uh, since there are studies that have come out showing that patients on immunotherapy who receive corticosteroids in high doses to treat immune-related adverse events don't seem to suffer an inferior um, uh, response rate or overall survival uh, with immunotherapy. Uh, now, all those things were risk factors for death in univariate analysis. When they do the multivariate analysis, performance status, history of brain meds, and corticosteroid use all remain statistically significant. Although ECOG performance status was a stronger predictor or had a higher hazard ratio, followed by corticosteroid use and then history of brain meds. So it doesn't mean that you, that um, in my opinion, my analysis of this is just because you're on steroids uh, does not mean that you're not a candidate for immunotherapy. Um, but maybe they have uh, a harder disease to treat and, and thus they're, they're more likely to die because their disease state is harder. Whether or not it's actually a, quote, drug interaction is going to require further research, that, and that's definitely needed. The next immunotherapy study I'll discuss is Keynote 407, which was published also last week in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, and this is looking at Pembro plus chemo for squamous non-small cell lung cancer. Um, so this randomized patients who had, um, they received either carboplatin, um, paclitaxel, or carboplatin and NAB paclitaxel. Uh, and this was, I believe this was all comers. But this was, didn't have anything to do with baseline PD-L1 status. So just as, as a bit of, um, of a recap here, you know, we've seen a lot of immunotherapy and uh, combination group, and we had the big... Uh, Pembro plus Carbo and Pemetrexid study. That was an adeno or a non, it was a non-squamous histology, so mostly adeno. So this is looking at a squamous histology, and they use carboplatin and paclitax or nab paclitaxel as the backbone. Uh, carbo gemcitabine may have been uh, a fair analysis as well. And they find um, that they did, they did the four cycles of chemo, could have done six, but they did four cycles of chemo, and then they randomized patients to either placebo or 35 cycles, roughly two years of pembrolizumab, and they see a median uh, overall survival of 15.9 months in the pembrolizumab group compared to 11.3 months. So a fairly large difference and improvement in median overall survival. Um, they did allow for crossover to pembrolizumab, and maybe tw I think it was 23, somewhere in there, about 20% of patients in the placebo group did cross over to pembrolizumab. Um, 60-some percent of patients did have um, a PD-L1 proportion score of more than 1%. So most of these folks were, quote, PD-L1 positive. Um, they, they planned for three interim analyses, and these results are based off of the second interim analysis to give an idea of how uh, they were progressing. There does seem to be uh, a bit of a trend with regards to... Um, with regards to a higher expression of pd one correlating to benefit, but that's not seen in the overall survival analysis. It's only seen in progression-free survival. Um, and since we saw such a big overall survival increase in the study, and it wasn't just limited to those who were pd one positive, makes you think that maybe patients do better earlier if they have a higher pd one status, since pd one status, at least in this study, correlated with progression-free survival, but not necessarily overall survival. Uh, final thing I'll say about this is there was about 10% more alopecia in the pembrolizumab combination compared to the just chemotherapy, and about 7% more thrombocytopenia with the pembro combination compared to placebo, which is not something that's consistently been seen um, 
to my recollection, other immunotherapy studies where you see more of the chemo side effects um, compared to chemo alone when immunotherapy was added. Uh, but that may be something interesting to go, to go back and, and search. Uh, the last immunotherapy study I'm going to talk about is Javelin Lung 200. And here we've seen, uh, I've gone through, uh, you know, two, just two, uh, yeah, a couple, couple positive studies of immunotherapy that you almost expect every immunotherapy study to be positive. Well, Javelin Lung 200 is an Evelumab study, and it was a negative study. Uh, and we got to talk about negative studies because they add as much information about what doesn't work as positive studies that tell us what does work. So this was looking at uh, non-small cell lung cancer in prior platinum treatment. And they randomized these patients to either a Evelumab 10 mg per kg every two weeks or docetaxel 75 mg per squared every three weeks. Uh, and they enrolled people who were pdl one negative as well as positive, but only said that they were analyzing for efficacy the pdl one positive. Um, just as a, as a bit of a background, we have uh, nivolumab has shown an overall survival benefit compared to docetaxel in the squamous cell histology that was based on Checkmate 17. And Keynote 10 showed that pembrolizumab um, was better than docetaxel in terms of overall survival for those who were PDL1 positive with uh, a more than 1% expression of tumor proportion score. Um, so and this study is both squamous and non-squamous. It's about two-thirds non-squamous to squamous. Um, and there was no overall survival benefit from the immunotherapy group compared to the docetaxel group. So docetaxel was as good as Evelumab. Uh, and this is a little bit surprising because we've seen immunotherapy beat docetaxel at every turn, whether it was adeno or squamous. Um, and when you look at the curve, and they're just looking at patients that are PD-L1 positive more than 1%, the survival curves are almost superimposable. There's absolutely no difference, right? Now, if you just look at those who had a PD-L1 expression of more than 50%, you see the curves widen. If you look at those who have a PD-1 expression more than 80%, which I've never seen that, uh, that subgroup anywhere else, it's even wider. So the response did correlate with or the efficacy of the drug did correlate with PD-L1 expression. Well, then why didn't, didn't they see any benefit in a PD-L1 positive group? Well, they talk about this in their discussion. Um, and I don't think Evalumab is a bad drug. I think maybe they don't have the best assay. So um, they talk about basically how they, the Evalumab uh, drug group uses a different assay to measure PDL1 expression than does the atezolizumab group or the nivolumab group, and um, basically everyone uses their own different assay uh, as a proprietary um, um, assessment, I guess, assay. So it looks like that 80% of volumab group is roughly equivalent, so 80% PDL1 expression in the assay used in the evalumab study seems to be about the same as the pembrolizumab assay um, in patients who have a 50% PD-L1 tumor proportion score. And atizolabin does something different where they look at, you know, ratios or, or differences in, in tumor, tumor expression as well as antigen cells progression of PD-L1. So I don't know that we know the best way to evaluate, quote, positive PDL1 status yet. Each drug is doing something slightly different. And the Evalumab folks in this study actually say that we can actually find more patients who are PDL1. And I kind of think, are you? Are you just finding, are you getting more noise in your assay? And maybe not all PDL1 is, is the same. If you think back uh, in the history of 
of whatever it is to say tumor necrosis factor. You know, there's tumor necrosis factor alpha, there's tumor necrosis factor beta, there's EGFR1, EGFR2. Maybe in the future we'll find that there are different variants of PDL1 as well. So anyway, immunotherapy is great, Nobel worthy. There's still so much we have to learn uh, as far as why uh, it works in some patients and not in others. Uh, I would be done, but there's more. Um, we had uh, an update to the carfilzomib package insert. This is based on the ARROW study, which was also presented at ASCO and I talked about in the ASCO wrap-up. This is the weekly dose of carfilzomib. Uh, people may have already been doing this. You may have been involved at your institution in changing your order sets, um, but now it's, it's in the package insert, so it's really easy to find that versus trying to find the ARROW study in Lancet Oncology and parsing out the methods. You can go to the package insert and see exactly what they did. Um, and then finally, uh, there was a phase one, two study of lenalidomide in patients with renal dysfunction. Um, and I, I did not know this, but apparently based on the background of this study, uh, and this was, uh, this was tweeted out by several folks on Twitter, published in Blood Cancer Journal, um, which is an open access journal, so everyone can, can find this. Um, the lead author is uh, Michael, M-I-K-H-A-E-L, Joseph. Uh, it's got Vincent Rashkumar, who's, who's a big name myeloma as well, cigar lonial. So, so pretty big folks in, in the myeloma world. Uh, basically, as they describe in their introduction here, our dosing of lilamide that's in the packet insert was based on, you know, a single dose given to patients with varying degrees of renal dysfunction. And what they did was say, well, we've been using this drug in everybody with myeloma for a decade. Why don't we see, uh, do a phase one study in people with renal dysfunction using the actual dosing regimen, 21 days on, seven days off. And to cut to the chase of it, they found that we can give patients more lenalidomide with renal dysfunction than we originally had. And perhaps this will lead to better outcomes in these patients with renal dysfunction. And part of the hope here is that more aggressive treatment with lenalidomide can reverse some of the renal dysfunction that might be caused by myeloma versus, say, someone who had pre-existing renal condition or pre-existing renal insufficiency and then happened to develop myeloma after they had bad kidneys. So whereas before, somebody with a creatinine clearance of 30 to 60 would have been recommended to take 10 milligrams a day, this day suggests they could safely take 25 or full dose. And those less than 30, whereas before would have taken, say, 15 milligrams every 48 hours, now could take 15 milligrams every day, maybe even 25 if they do fine the first time. So the, the take-home point here is that um, many years after this drug's been on the market, we are still learning more about how to use lenalidomide best. Uh, common theme in oncology. New drug gets approved, everyone starts using it, and then some years later, as we continue to have uh, just kind of good scientific curiosity, we're able to learn more and more and fine-tune our use of these drugs to help patients as best we can. You know, I made it in under 30 minutes, and, and I'm quite uh, surprised, a little bit proud of myself. Thanks for listening to, uh, to the Oncofarm. Um, find us uh, on iTunes. If you're not listening on iTunes, please go to the iTunes store, uh, rate us, give us a five-star review, review us, tell us what you'd like to hear more of in the future. You feel free to follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNip and follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod. And until, uh, until I see you next, hope to see you a little further down the road.